Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hey, fans, you know the NBA and college basketball are back, and the NFL playoffs are really right around the corner now. So, with all these sports going on, there are plenty of bets to lock in. So, if you're thinking about picking, say, the Lakers to repeat their NBA championship, or maybe somebody to upset Pat Mahomes and the Chiefs, you need to go to betonline.ag. From game spreads and totals, teams, players, coaching props, BetOnline gives you more options to wager than any place online. And there is always the online casino, of course, as well. It never closes. So go ahead, head to BetOnline.ag today. Take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Again, that's BetOnline.ag and sign up today. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. Hey gang, Mike and Mark here. Well, your support has been great, so please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download our podcast from. You know, one aspect of the podcast that you've told us you really enjoy is the diversity of our guests and their roles in and around sports. So as you know, we talk beginnings and not just those of current and former players. Our concept was intentionally created to include really anyone and everyone associated with being at the top of their respective games, whatever their game is. So on this episode, so on this episode, we're joined by Alana Rizzo, a woman who many of you know from her Emmy award-winning work as the Dodgers television sideline reporter and host, and she's there with the team every single game all year long. And Mark, she also has a lot of interests outside of baseball and some wonderful stories to share. Mike, women in sports, how important is it? And in our podcast, we are going to dive into Alana's career, which is very important leading into this year in the pandemic season, 2020 World Series Championship for the Los Angeles Dodgers. Well, Alana, 2020, uh, I'll call it lucky seven for you because your seventh year with the Dodgers, it was certainly a grand, but it was a crazy one. L.A. finally winning the World Series ends a 32-year drought. Fans, though, had to watch this entire run from home. So I think really relying on you and the broadcast team, perhaps more than ever, what was this year like from your perspective? Bizarre. I watched the entire season from a suite at Dodger Stadium, which the first game I was in there, I said, hey, I think I can get used to this. I had a full size refrigerator. I had a bathroom right across the hall. I had the entire you know, park to myself, but not hearing the team and the sounds and the sights of the game was really bizarre. And what was really strange about it is we broadcast from Dodger Stadium, even when the team was on the road, obviously. Mm-hmm. But to be watching a game basically like our viewers on television and on a monitor when this field was, you know, 100 yards down the way and the team isn't on the field was very strange. And they would turn off all of the lights at Dodger Stadium. There's no point in having them on with the exception of our booths. So it would be Joe and Oral, Spanish radio, Spanish television, us, you know, the sideline um, booth over there. So you'd have four lights on in a pitch black stadium in the middle of Chavez Ravine and walking out of there at night was so strange to just be in an absolutely pitch dark stadium. I will say this though, getting out of Dodger Stadium in 2020 (laughs) was one of the highlights of my life. Not having to deal with that traffic was amazing. And I've dealt with that too, uh, Alana. Um, as a player, that was one of those things. If you wanted to try to get it out quickly, it, it could never happen. I mean, I was trying to dive into Manhattan Beach as fast as possible after a game in a Dodger uniform. 
you're not getting out of there for at least an hour. Uh, let's let's uh, go into almost the elephant in the room. Not 1988 was the last World Series championship for an unbelievable franchise in the Los Angeles Dodgers. Take us into that lens of them finally doing it. Kershaw gets the win. Uh, the Dodger franchise gets the World Series win. What was it like from your perspective? I'll never get a couple of images out of my head when they actually won the World Series in 2020. The first, obviously, is Julio Urias throwing that final strike and, and his emotion on the hill to lock it down. And Clayton Kershaw in the bullpen, putting up both of his hands, looking up to the sky and just Honestly, you could almost see the relief and just the absolute joy. And I know he was just on your podcast the other day. And to get Clayton to talk about himself is incredibly difficult. Um, but mm-hmm. my gosh, to finally have that monkey, that proverbial monkey off of his back was, was so great. And to finally see this team do it. And honestly, I really think they should have won in 2017. And we don't have to go into that. But really, they should have won two in the last five years. And you know, I know the argument that this was only a 60 game regular season and it doesn't really matter. And I can tell you that from a reporter perspective of watching this team go through what they had to go through and not just our team, you guys do. I mean, obviously the, the San Diego Padres in the, in the postseason and, and the bubble and everything that they had to do. I think it was more difficult to win a championship in 2020. And I would argue that the other 29 teams that didn't win it would gladly take it uh, asterisk or not. And not having the access to the players was incredibly difficult. As a sideline reporter and a host with baseball, you rely so much on your personal conversations with players and the body language and knowing their routines and knowing when Justin Turner does his crossword puzzle and knowing when Clayton Kershaw does his, his warm up and, and his side work and, and those types of things and knowing when you can talk to players and, and really getting a sense of how they're feeling and how they're doing and, and not having that personal approach and doing everything through zoom was incredibly impersonal, incredibly hard. When they won the World Series, I was in a suite at Globe Life Field. I did not get a player interview for an hour. I was waiting for an hour to have them go through all of the national stuff. And, you know, normally we're in the clubhouse with them getting absolutely torched with champagne and beer. And you can grab guys in that natural emotional element and really give our viewers a sense of how, they're feeling in that moment, in that celebration. And by the time we got to them, it was almost watered down. And it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate for the fans. It's unfortunate for us as, as members of their broadcast team that we didn't get to experience it. That being said, I'm thankful we had a season at all. And you look at it, Alana, I mean, the, the aspect of being in the bubble, I think one of the attributes that the Dodgers were actually fortunate about it was they didn't have to move uh, from series to series. They they had the, the the Padres and then they moved on to Atlanta and then the World Series, of course. What was that like uh, uh, going into the bubble, uh, that situation for you, and how did that all evolve um, and with the challenges? I was so grateful for it, actually, to not have to go back and forth. The team was in a bubble um, in Las Colinas at the Four Seasons. I was in a broadcast bubble, basically an MLB hotel right next to the ballpark. And to not have to fly back and forth was really a benefit to basically put our stuff in the suite at the field and never have to worry about it and know exactly where we were going to be every day and not have to get on a plane and travel back and forth and and try to eliminate as much risk as we possibly could uh, in that way. The security was great. The staff was great. The players were, you know, to their credit, um, really 
doing everything they could to adhere to all the safety protocols. Very strange though, because their competitors were in the exact same hotel and, you know, seeing the Padres or the Rays or what have you walking down the same hallway and, and you're, you know, this is a small business and, and with free agency and all the different trades and stuff, everybody knows everybody and the families and the wives are playing, you know, the kids are playing together and the wives are hanging out and it's, it's just strange. It's like you want, you know, they actually had to have some conversations like, Hey, you know, just because we're, you know, chipping golf balls together at Las Colinas doesn't mean that, you know, we don't want to rip your head off when we're on the field. So it was just such a strange dynamic, um, this season and, and covering it. And the whole thing was really bizarre. And for, for the players, when they won, not being, if, if, if their immediate family, for example, if their parents were not in their bubble, they couldn't celebrate with their parents. None of the parents could give their kids hugs or anything uh, on the field because they weren't in the bubble. So it was just very, it was very strange. You know, you know, your parents are there, but you can't properly celebrate with them. Yeah. Certain aspects to this is in uh, the championship were, were very odd. For example, Clayton Kershaw lived 20 miles away and obviously friends, family um, couldn't be there. Uh, some of his high school buddies that he has a text chain together were at the field, but they couldn't celebrate after the game. Uh, very odd. Uh, another aspect, Alana, that I would love to get your perspective on was the aspect of Justin Turner in the team picture after um, he was taking, taken out of the game um, because of precautionary reasons, uh, because of COVID stuff. But uh, then he is he's on the field with the team picture. Um, from a player's perspective, that's a moment that will be cherished the rest of his life. Um, I didn't have a problem with it, uh, but I know a lot of people did. What was your perspective? I think it flipped, honestly. When it first happened, I was so upset for Justin Turner. Of all the guys on that team, perhaps with the exception of Clayton and Kenley, of all the guys on that team, the lifeblood of, of the Dodgers is Justin Turner. And, mm. and Dave Roberts, who you guys know very well, has oftentimes coined Justin as, as the glue that keeps this team together. And really the, you know, the unspoken captain, I realize there's not captains in baseball unless you're Jeter, mm -hmm. but to have that happen to him in that moment, I can't imagine a, a, a worse scenario. So when he got taken out in the eighth inning, I didn't know what the heck happened. And I didn't know until Kevin Burkhart on Fox said that there was a, an issue with COVID. And then when, again, when everyone was celebrating and I was wondering where JT was, when he came back out onto the field and he was holding the trophy, I was thankful that he actually had that opportunity to do so. And then I was thinking, I didn't, when Dave Roberts was asked about allowing Justin Turner to sit in that photo, Dave was talking to us when Justin went out on the field. So he didn't even know at the time, you know, that Justin was out there because it, it was happening simultaneously. So people were trying to, you know, question Doc about it when, in fact, it was happening at the same time. And, he, and Dave wasn't really privy to what, all what was going on. From a personal standpoint, my heart bled for Justin Turner. And, and I can understand as a player, you're going to look back at that photo and you're going to want to be there with your guys. From a public standpoint, especially since Justin Turner was the champion of making sure that his team adhered to the protocols, I can understand the mixed message. But in that moment and in that emotional state, I can understand why he did it. I think all around, it was just so incredibly unfortunate. And also in Justin's defense, 
He stayed away from the team. The team, his teammates came up to him and approached him and wanted him to be a part of it as well. Yeah, I love that perspective, Alana. I mean, it, it's interesting in, in whatever side you you side on. It's No one can lose the, the simple fact that when you are a leader of a club, that's what everyone wants. That's what they rely on is those moments that you get to capture are incredible. This takes us to you, uh, back to it. My, as Mike said, seven years, and you win a World Series championship. And I say you won a World Series championship because – you're invested in this club. You're 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 doing it every single day. And one of the hidden gems of this, and you know him so well, is John Suhu, and also the people that have worked for him. Why I bring him his name up uh, over uh, thirty years in, in the business, and he's the team photographer. Um, he captured a lot of people with that World Series trophy. Do you have a picture with a World Series trophy? And if not, are, are you going to get one? Because that, to me, is very important for you. I have yet to see the World Series trophy. I was not allowed on the field. Um, and it was at Dodger Stadium briefly. Uh, I mean, obviously, it's still there. But I have not had the opportunity yet to take a photo with the World Series trophy. Whereas when they went to the World Series in 17 and 18, I did have an opportunity to see the National League Championship trophy. Um, so no, I don't have a photo yet. Um, I'm hoping that at some point I can see it, that, you know, it's just a piece of metal, however, but I'm hoping <laughs> that um, at some point I do get to see it and, and perhaps take a photo. Everyone keeps asking if I'm getting a ring. I don't know. I would hope so. But the, uh, you know, this organization has been very gracious to treat its staff uh, so, so well. And um I'm just thankful that I get to cover a team that does win year in and year out. But at some point, I'm hoping to start my eighth season with them in January. So when I get back to L.A., um, hopefully I'll get a picture with the, with the trophy. I was going to say, you'll have to come back on the podcast, show us the picture of you with the trophy. <laughs> we want to see the big rapper style ring, you know, that you'll wear a big gaudy ring. It should be fantastic. Oh, yeah. The more diamonds, the better. I hope it weighs my hand. I always get the men's ring, too. They give you a choice of a women's ring, a men's ring, or a pendant. I'm like, I'm really not going to wear the pendant every day. The no. women's ring, what's the point? I might as well just right. get the guy's ring and just have it all blinged out. Go big or go home is some <laughs> quote from some great American I've heard before. Hey, take us back to the beginning for Alana Rizzo. I, I know that a lot of the audience is clearly familiar with your work, uh, as we've talked about, covering the Dodgers, but they may know you as well from your national work uh, at MLB Network or maybe in Colorado uh, with the Rockies. You're from Colorado yourself. Been a heck of a ride, but was this always the career you wanted to get into? It wasn't. I was actually in sales and marketing for five years prior to going even into journalism. I graduated from the University of Colorado and had a bachelor's of science in international business with a marketing emphasis. And I went into the beverage industry, the hospitality industry, and I won't bore you as much as I was bored for the five years. I was just very, <laughs> very unfulfilled. It was incredibly ungratifying. So I basically had an epiphany between uh, Christmas and New Year's of 2001 and said, if there's anything I could do, what would it be if money wasn't an object, if I won the lottery? And I had always been a sports fan and sports aficionado, more so a spectator than a participant. I ran cross country and track competitively in high school, but I was never much of a coordinated team sport athlete. Um, but I grew up in a big sports family. We're huge Denver Broncos fans. My family is incredi incredibly dysfunctional, but that is the one thing we can all agree on is our love and hatred of the Denver Broncos. Um, so that was just a big part of my life. And I was always interested in sports. So I just kind of said, if, you know, if I could do anything, what would it be? So I went back to school, took a, you know, took a second mortgage on my house, paid to go to school. I went back to the University of Colorado and 
got a master's in broadcast journalism and started at the bottom. I didn't even know what a beat was when I started <laughs> in journalism. And um, I just kind of worked my way up. My, my first job was in Wichita Falls, Texas at CBS. And I was there for nine months. It felt like nine years. I covered everything from, you know, Midwestern State University, you know, Division Three to the rodeo log <laughs> log rolling. That's a thing, log rolling. Um, yeah. <laughs> NASCAR is big in these small towns. And of course, in Texas, high school football is is the end all be all. So, you know, I covered Odessa, Permian and, and these huge high school football teams. And, you know, that's, that was a big deal. And we joked that... Um, our live truck was actually a dead truck. Our live truck had to be towed from place to place because the damn thing didn't even run properly. So it was just, you know, it's an experience and it's important to get those. And uh, from there I went to Madison, Wisconsin and that was Market 85 and I was there for three years and amazing college sports town. Madison's incredible, uh, University of Wisconsin and covered you know everything there, as you might imagine, covered both the men's and women's national ho- hockey championship in the same year and had a really good experience there. And I really just wanted to get home to Colorado. So uh, I had an out in my contract in Madison. I was able to get the job as a freelancer in Denver. And I worked there for five seasons covering the Rockies. Knew very little other than the basics of baseball. Aaron Cook was their ace at the time. At the time, I didn't know what a sinker ball pitcher was. <laughs> yeah. um, it was a, you know, a huge learning curve. And um now baseball is my absolute favorite thing in the world. And I uh, was there for five years, was fortunate enough to get the call from MLB Network, wanted to go national, uh, did that for a few years, but I really missed the sights and sounds of the park. And I noticed that, you know, the analysts in the studio can pontificate all they want, but you're, if you're not in a clubhouse, you really don't know what's going on. And uh, I missed it. I missed the the first sound of the cleats in spring training the first time they walk out. And I missed all of that. And um I was covering the Dodgers in the postseason for 12 and 13. They launched a new network in 14, and I'm about to start my eighth season. Was it a no-brainer for you to take that L.A. job? I mean, it sounds so fans will say, oh, yeah, you got to take a Dodger job. You got to take a Yankee job. What was it like for you? I almost didn't take it because I did not think I, I wanted to live in LA. I, there was two things that were really concerning to me. I didn't think, you know, you have a perspective of LA if you're not from there about how LA is. And all I knew it was from a visitor's perspective, dealing with the traffic, dealing with the garbage, dealing with all of that stuff. And I wasn't certain that I wanted what I thought to be, you know, that very superficial lifestyle. And that's not what LA is about. There's pockets of all of that everywhere. Um, I am so grateful I took this job and I didn't listen to myself. I love, I've never lived in a better place, including Colorado. And I'm born and raised there. And I've never lived, I've never enjoyed living in a place more than I've enjoyed living in Manhattan Beach. And the other reason I almost didn't take the job is because at the time I had a dog and I was very giddy. And I was very concerned that I wasn't going to be able to find a place for him to run. Um, there's, there's not a lot of yards and LA is expensive. LA is really expensive. And I'll never forget when I moved there, I, I took the job. I moved there. I opened up my check for the first time. And I was like, are you kidding? I mean, the amount of taxation in the state of California, I was like, why the hell did I just leave MLB network? But anyway, long story short, I'm glad I didn't listen to myself. And, and I do, I absolutely love living there. Alana, on this uh, podcast, we always talk about beginnings, uh, which is fascinating to me. Uh, everyone's story, and sometimes we get to reflect because uh, you're so fast-paced and you're thinking about what's next 
that you forget to dive back into it. Let's go back to Colorado. And I always love hearing perspective of people on their first opening day. What was that like for you? You know, I, the first opening day I remember was more as a spectator than as a reporter. In 1993, I was a senior in college, so I'm dating myself here. We didn't have Major League Baseball in Colorado until 93, when the Rockies came there as an expansion team. So I'm a senior in high school, and I think I said college. I'm a senior in high school in 93. Mark Baronic was the boys' basketball coach and my accounting teacher. He brought a TV into the room and allowed us to watch Major League Baseball history during class because, again, it was at the old Mile High Stadium before mm -hmm. they built Coors Field and before Lodo became Lower Downtown in Denver. And we watched history with 80,000 people at this stadium, the football stadium, watching the Colorado Rockies take the field. And that was such a vivid memory for me. Um, again, not even really being a huge baseball fan at the time, but allowing us to do that. And that same teacher came down two seasons ago in Colorado when the Dodgers were at the Rockies and came down to see me and told me, you know, just following my career and stuff. And I reminded him of that moment of when in 93, he introduced me to the Colorado Rockies. As a reporter, I don't really remember much about my first opening day covering. I think you're just so um, in the middle of it. I will say this, this opening day was awful because you remember how much you like that pomp and circumstance and the emotion and the flyover and the bunting and the guys are excited and everyone lined up on the baselines and not having that sucked. Yeah. So that's, you know, I, I do, I do miss that. And an opening day is such a special, special, special day. Well, Alana, you're so smooth on the air and you're immensely talented. You've obviously chosen the right path. Uh, what I think is fascinating about what you do is not only do you have to handle the, I'll call the inner office politics, because you're around these players so closely every day, all the time. And you have this tremendous responsibility to the fans, but also to the organization to tell the team's story. Establishing that credible and respectful rapport you have with these high profile players and staff, how would you describe your technique and the approach you take day in and day out? I think the biggest thing for me, Mike, is professionalism and preparation. I think as, you know, early on, if, if you see a woman in sports, people are going to assume they probably don't know what they're talking about. And I think the biggest credit I can get is if a colleague of mine appreciates the work that I do. You know, a man that is doing the same job standing beside me or, or, or a woman doing it as well. I think... The biggest thing is I'm, I'm very no nonsense and the players know that I'm there to do a job, but I also respect their job as well. And I don't put up with anything. Honestly, I don't, I think the older I've gotten, I don't need to. I mean, honestly, I could be half of our team's mother in terms of age difference. They keep getting younger and I certainly don't. So <laughs> I just think that there's a, a reputation that precedes me at this point that I've done it long enough. I think it's, I mean, and you guys know, I mean, Sweeney, you know what it's like to how hard it is to get in the business, let alone stay. You know, I mm think -hmm. it's such a difficult thing to do. And both of you guys know that. And I, I think through time, it's like the, the more ABs you get, the more these guys know that you know what you're talking about and you're asking the right questions, but you also respect them. And, you know, listen, everybody knows that I'm a Dodger employee. I'm not going to bury them. And they know that. But they also respect the fact that I have a job to do, too. And there's been often times where they will wait for me to get there before they answer questions. And there's certain guys is, again, going back to the personalities of each guy and, and how to deal with 
respective personalities, there's more guys that, you know, there's guys that are comfortable uh, with me. And, and it's just, it's a, it's a, it's about building rapport. It's about relationships, but it's also about not overstepping any boundaries. I think you can get into this business, particularly as a woman for one of two reasons. And I, I, I just, you know, you, you choose the professional path and always make sure that you do your homework. And one thing I learned is to make sure I ask my colleagues questions if I don't know the answer. There is no way in the world I'm going to know more about the game than someone that played it. And I would be foolish to think otherwise. Yeah, and it's interesting you you mentioned that too, Alana, because I think those are the challenges, right? You want to be you want to be right in your job, but also uh, you should uh, have the ability to ask questions. That takes me to another question, which I think is so important: is mentors, uh, people that are important in your career, um, giving you the best advice. Does anyone stick out in your mind that has really molded you into that? What your aspects of what you just talked about. I don't know that there's somebody necessarily in the industry that's really molded me. I think the biggest thing is my biggest role model or, or person that's been there the most, obviously, is my mom. I mean, she's never been a person that has pressured me into anything, but yet she was always incredibly supportive. And, you know, I think the biggest thing with this is I, I took a risk on myself. And, you know, going back to school, giving up a salary, taking a second mortgage out of my house, going into something I knew nothing about. And I was a lot older when I got into this industry. I was 28 when I went back to school. So this wasn't like I was 18 going into a brand new industry. And, um, you know, she's just always really encouraged me to, to go for it. And thankfully, I, I didn't have, um, you know, that pressure of, of going in a certain direction. I mean, there's a lot of people in this industry that I greatly admire and I have wonderful relationships with men and women in this business that that do the same thing and you know there's a lot of people that I, I look up to in the business both male and female uh, you know regardless of gender I think Mike Tirico is amazing I think Michelle Tafoya does an amazing job I think you know John Saunders is fantastic I think you know, Dan Schulman, there's just, there's so many different people all across the board, sideline reporter, play-by-play, -play, color analyst, you know, that I think we all have the same common thread though. It, it's a dedication to the craft. Um, and it's a, it's a commitment to being prepared, you know, everywhere from, you know, Dick Enberg, Vince Scully, you know, and, and now with our, with our young play-by-play -play guy, Joe Davis, who's an up and coming star, you know, and I think, we all have that same common thread is just work ethic and, and perseverance and, and the love for the game. And you have to love this job because, you, you know, you're doing it more than you're doing anything else. You know, you made an interesting remark, too, about uh, your role as, as a woman in this sport. Uh, I think it's interesting to all of our listeners. Many of us are parents. Mark and I each uh, have daughters. We're always searching for role models, uh, especially in sports or in businesses that are seemingly typically male dominated. We want to make sure our young women know uh, the field is open to them as well. We just saw Kimming uh, land a role finally, and some would say long overdue uh, as the general manager of the Marlins. And I think that resonated throughout the sport. We're seeing other women getting opportunities again, long overdue. Uh, what do you see your role though, as along with these other women, uh, when it comes to shaping the opinion of young ladies and their career paths moving forward? I think the biggest thing for me is authenticity. I think especially on air, people will be able to absolutely expose you if you don't know what you're talking about, particularly in baseball. 
I think baseball is a sport that on the day to day, you really have to know what you're talking about because there are still those, you know, those purists out there and the, and the old school of thought that don't believe in sabermetrics and don't believe in any of this stuff. And, you know, really don't want the rules to change and God forbid the DH hit the NL and and those types of things. But I, I do think just being authentic and being prepared and, and laughing at yourself, it's live TV. We're not, we're not curing cancer. You know, we're, we're doing, we're giving people that have really rough lives. Sometimes the only reprieve they get in their day, you know, parents trying to make ends meet, um, you know, people really struggling with the world. We are there three or lately four hours a day of, of escape. And I think it's just my job to to be prepared and, and, give them the stories that, that they're looking for and, and giving them as much information about the team as, as possible and, and giving them something to look forward to about a team that, listen, they're going to watch the Dodgers regardless of who the broadcast team is. You know, none of us think that they're watching for us. We are just an added bonus. If they happen to like us, great. I mean, I would put it, you know, our broadcast team up against anybody, but they're watching the Dodgers for the Dodgers. And if we can come into their homes on a daily basis and they enjoy us, great. Uh, Alana, the the one thing that I want to dive into is some of the the fun aspects. When you cover a very good team, uh, you realize that uh, on a normal year, you're having walk-off interviews and also (laughs) Gatorade baths. I I mean, from our listeners' perspective, uh, can you give it your your favorite one and and the interesting aspect uh, doing that interview? It's so funny because everyone brings up the Gatorade baths, and I I am like a ninja now. I have gotten to the point. Where I can like make sure the player does not know it's coming, but I can like manage it and maneuver and stand a certain way to know that I can get out of the way. Um, One of the ones I remember is several years ago before the return of Matt Kemp, before he got traded to begin with, um, he was my walk off interview and it was coming and he grabbed me so I couldn't leave. And then I fell on the ground and I got totally doused and I joked that I was going to send him my dry cleaning bill because by the way, I have to pay for that stuff, players. Um, yeah, it's fans love it. People love it. I, you know, I'd rather have water than Gatorade cause I have to, I don't get to shower after the game. Like you guys, I have to sit in my car with sticky Gatorade all over the place and, and go home. But um, you know, fans love it. And, and listen, if that's happening, it means that we're winning a lot. So it's, it's fine. When you look at it, too, uh, the dry cleaning bills, uh, one of those things that I think these uh, players that make a lot of money should be taking care right? of that. And exactly. and listen, that's not because I'm a broadcaster. I always believed in that. I just didn't do too many walk off interviews. I, I mean, I, I was one of the I, I was the guy celebrating a lot. <laughs> I will say this. The two no hitters I covered as a member um, of the Dodgers that threw no hitter. So, um Josh Beckett and Clayton Kershaw, like six weeks apart or whatever it was in 2014, I was wearing the same pair of shoes when they did that. So those shoes have the Gatorade still from those two no hitters. So I do have those. The the no hitter shoes. I love that. (laughs) Uh, Listen, Alana, I I don't want to go away from this interview uh, and this podcast without mentioning Vince Scully. Uh, Vince Scully is an icon in the game of baseball. He always has been, um, to me as a player, 
it, it was always amazing because there's certain people in lives that have a presence. Uh, Vin Scully has a presence. Any room that he walks in, you know that room is totally changed. Um, that aspect to me is uh, is amazing. 67 years broadcasting. Um, in two, 2016, that was his last season. Uh, you were obviously smack dab in the middle of it. Uh, your picture with him is on your Twitter, and that's how important he is. Uh, speak to uh, your lens and what Vin Scully meant to you, but also that 2016 season and how he did it with class. You know, he is as kind in person and as a human being as he comes across on television and, and across the mic. And Vin is, as you mentioned, he's a legend. I'm not sure that there are any more adjectives that we could use to describe how amazing of a man um, he is in this industry and, and the impact. You talk about a man that has had a generational impact on people. Our grandparents, our children, um, have listened to him for decades. And to see him walk away uh, was difficult. I'm thankful for the couple of years I had to work with him as, as a teammate, if you will. And I will never forget when I met him for the first time, I was a member of the Rockies and I'm a nobody. And the man does not forget a name. He still knows what was happening you know, 50 years ago. He can tell you any box score, who was in the line. I mean, his memory is unbelievable, but the way that he weaves a story in the middle of telling you what's going on in not only one game, he can do it in multiple games. And then he's still talking about, you know, you know, cotton candy clouds and a little baby in the stands. And he's just an amazing, absolute treasure of a human being. He he's an American fixture of everything that is right with, with the world and, and with sport and, he he's just he's a he's a gracious human being and it's funny to see him now on social media and you know all of all of this stuff and and just you know recounting these stories and you know putting all of it think about all of the memorabilia that he put up for auction i mean think of the decades of stuff that this man has and, and what he's seen and and the people that he's been with and we talk about rubbing elbows and and so many people there's not he is the Dodgers. I mean, there of, of any player that's ever graced that field or, or walked through those halls, I guarantee you more people want to meet Vin than they have ever wanted to meet mm-hmm. former player. And um perhaps maybe Jackie Robinson. That's not fair. But you know, it, it's pretty special to see the impact that he has had um on the world and certainly not just in Los Angeles. Oh, he's been every piece of baseball in Americana, as you pointed out so eloquently, uh, for the better part, certainly of our lives and for generations even that preceded ours. Uh, So you've had this fabulous run with the Dodgers, a really fantastic career to this point. And we know you have a ton more ahead of you. Uh, But again, we are called Major League Beginnings. And one of your beginnings occurred in 2019 when you began a new foundation, uh, Guidry's Guardian. Tell us about that and why you decided then was the time to pursue this passion. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about this. This is my baby. This is my passion project. I had adopted Guidry. Um, I named him after Ron Guidry. So I always joke that he was a Southpaw. Um, I adopted <laughs> him in 2009 out of the Humane Society of Boulder Valley in, in Boulder, where I was uh, living at the time. And it just really opened my eyes to the need for fostering and adoptive services. And unfortunately, in major cities like Los Angeles, you know, Miami, Dallas, New York, Chicago, um, Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of animals are put to sleep on a yearly basis just because of overcrowded shelters. And and there's just such a a lack of legislation for backyard breeding and dumping of animals. We have a very 
unfortunate culture in America of just dumping our animals, um, much like we dump our elderly. And it's uh, it's just disheartening to see these animals get killed for no reason. So the whole point of Guidry's Guardian Foundation, which I launched in July of 2019 after Guidry, who passed away ironically three weeks after I launched the foundation, um, is to save as many dogs as possible off of the streets and out of high kill shelters. Um, and what we do is we don't have a physical building. I am not a rescue that pulls dogs out of shelters. I don't, I just don't have the means for that. We don't have a brick and mortar, but what we do as my organization is we fundraise to support rescues that can do that. And we pay primarily for the medical bills, which are exorbitant um, to getting these animals vetted, healthy as possible, and then get them into adoptive permanent homes. So fostering services, adoptive services, we are a 100% foundation-based organization. So we don't have government funding or, or, you know, corporate sponsorship or anything like that. But through the generous community, um, we have been able to, in some way or another, help about 150 dogs so far, all in the name of Guidry, who really opened my eyes to that need. And, And I am adamant about rescuing and adamant about adopting. Um, You know, I I try to steer people away from getting dogs from breeders and dropping $3,000 on a, on a golden doodle. Um, You can, you can adopt golden doodles out of shelters. You just have to be a little bit more patient. Now I understand everyone has a need and I, and I get it. And it's just my, my heart breaks for these animals that have no chance just simply because they're, they're a number and there's just not services for them. Yeah, Alana, you know what, uh, Mike, I, I can speak for Mike, too, because uh, huge dog lovers, um, all they need is love. All they need is support. So uh, to your point, um, it, coming out of a shelter, they're looking for that love, that attachment that I think is fascinating to us. How can people help? Uh, what can they do for you? And and, and how can they uh, do stuff moving forward for this foundation? Again, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. Again, we're donation-based, so there is no amount that is too big or too small. Every dollar matters, literally a dollar matters. So um, you can go to at Guidry's Guardian, which is G-U-I-D-R-Y-S Guardian on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, Guidry'sGuardian.org is our website, or you can just go to at Alana Rizzo, A-L-A-N-N-A-R-I-Z-Z-O, and it will link you to the foundation. Um, you know, no, no amount is big or small. We'll, we'll take anything that, that you can do. It's, it's incredibly gratefully appreciated. I got to tell you, I've got a, a brand new rescue dog myself, Luigi. We All right. Yeah, we think he's a Belgian Malinois, but I don't have the credentials to prove it. They're great dogs. I, I, uh, I was fostering because of COVID. I'll make this I'll make this brief because of COVID and we didn't travel. I actually, for the first time with the Dodgers, had an opportunity to foster because I was home. I wasn't traveling with the team. So I went to Bakersfield, California to look at two other dogs that I was trying to get to Canada because Canada does not have the same issue that we have. And they are begging for dogs there to adopt. So I was trying to get these other two dogs to Canada. And I saw this dog in a cage. Um, Her name was Sasha at the time. Long story short, I was like, I think I can, I definitely can probably, you know, get her adopted. So I brought her with me, took her to the vet, took her home the next day. She's mine. I adopted her. <laughs> Softy. So, yeah, so Sasha became Bentley and and she went from living in a cage for four years in Bakersfield, California, to hitting the jackpot because I literally work for her. 
Yeah. Well, I got to tell you, you've done remarkable work in front of the camera. You've done remarkable work with the with the pets and, and your organization. Again, folks, you want to help out Alana, and it's a, certainly a worthy cause. Keep this in mind. It's GidriesGuardian.org. You follow Alana on Instagram, on Twitter. I would imagine you're on the Facebooks and all over the, the interwebs, uh, everywhere. Find Alana Rizzo. It's absolutely worth your while. Oh, and by the way, she's a remarkably talented uh, reporter and host. So her day job is pretty important as well. Alana, thank you so much for the time. Oh, my gosh, you guys. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Folks, thanks so much for checking out Major League Beginnings. If you had as much fun as we did, we hope you'll go ahead and hit the subscribe button where you usually download your podcast from. It could be Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you like. We're just glad to have you aboard, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.